0: Sure. share, if you have uh, anxiety, panic, depression, night terrors, insomnia, anything along the anxiety, depression, would you stand up? I feel like the Lord is going to deliver people from those things tonight. Anything like that. And if, uh, if, you're, if one of your children have that and they're not here tonight, just stand for them, would you? We're going to pray right now for that. Is there anybody sitting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Extend your hands to some of these folks that are around you, please, and we're going to just pray right now. Lord, we release the peace of God that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I release peace that crushes Satan under your feet. And I break the power of torment, depression, night terrors, insomnia, every kind of mental distress. And we just break that thing right now in Jesus' name. And we release right now. A, just, I just infuse people with peace. In fact, we just blow peace into you right now. Receive the peace of God. And those that are watching by TV, Bethel TV, we just release peace over you too, over your homes, over your children, and we say no more distress, no more night terrors, no more anxiety, and no more depression. We pray the joy of the Lord, the joy that's the Lord's joy, would be your strength. The joy that's not related to your circumstances would be your strength. And we thank you, Lord, that we've come into a kingdom. It's not eat or drink, but it is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we release the Holy Spirit's peace on every single person here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just those of you that are getting prayer, say, I receive that for myself and for my family. In Jesus' name. Amen. That's a good word right there. Well, grab a hand and let's pray for the message. We have to have a mess to have a message. For the single people, you can squeeze the hand of the person next to you if you'd like to date them. This is why the single people come to my conferences and it's the the best part of the evening for them. You can squeeze back if it's a yes. So Holy Spirit, we just thank you for what you're doing tonight and we just pray that you would infuse that you would infuse the atmosphere with faith and anticipation tonight i pray that every that we would wake up tomorrow morning with the with the impending sense of awesome <laughs> we'd have an impending sense of i am doomed to success i am destined for good thank you lord I receive that for me, too. Just say, I receive that for myself, too. <laughs> Amen. So, it's a good word. We've been talking about wealth for a couple, of three weeks, and I, I think I'm going to do another session tonight. We'll see. But um, we were talking about wealth, and we've been talking about, uh, how many of you been here for any of the sessions of, on wealth? How many of you not? Wow, you poor people. P-O-O-R people, you poor people. We've all gotten wealthy while you were gone. Well, um, I, you know, I, I felt like about probably four or five months ago that the Lord began to talk to me about wealth. And I shared my story of a man giving me $30,000 and then me avoiding him for six months. And then I had an encounter with God um, and, and That night, the night that I ran out of the bathroom that that man was in, he didn't see me. And I went home that night, and, and it began a process in my life. I and I, I stayed up that night just trying to figure out what was wrong with me because I had been avoiding a, this man who had given me so much money, and I, I didn't never had never had really met him. And um, and to make a long story short, the Lord's I. About 4 o'clock in the morning, I, I said to the Lord, do you know what's wrong with me? He said, yes. I said, will you tell me? He said, do you really want to know? Ha <laughs> ha, you know, I mean, you know, denial is a beautiful thing. It's denial. <laughs> denial. Anyway, that was a joke. But, so, I, I, so I laid there for several minutes and finally said, yes, I really want to know. And he said, to, you know, I'll just call the man John. He said, John gave you $30,000. I said, I know that. He said, the problem is you don't love yourself $30,000 worth. And you're afraid that if John gets to know you, he'll be sorry he gave you the money. And, um, and that began a process for me. And I, so I said to the Lord, what should I do? He said, why don't you try this? Why don't you love yourself as much as I love you? And I began to realize and through uh, that night and through a series of, of um, other encounters and circumstances throughout the next couple of years that I had spent most of my life sabotaging my prosperity. And I'm not just talking about money, I'm just talking about prosperity in general. And I, I began to learn from my own experience that whenever someone treats you better than you treat yourself, you typically sabotage your relationship with them. And I, I began to learn that when you, know, when you put someone in a better environment around them that they, than they believe they have within them, that they'll reduce the environment around them to the environment they have within them. And I, and I, I started this process, and of course out of that Out of those encounters came my first book, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty, in which the Lord began to talk to me about the fact that I am actually a royal son. I'm actually a son of a king who happens to be incredibly wealthy. So I can pretend that I don't have anything, but my daddy is actually really wealthy. And uh, so some people are like, Jesus was poor. Well, actually, his heritage was he was very rich. He owns everything in heaven. <laughs> so, for maybe depending on how you look at the life of Jesus, he may have been poor for a few years, but he went back to riches. And he lives on, you know, lives in a place where they paved the streets with gold. So, I, I just began to realize that, you know, and this is, we are, this is all repeat, by the way, for the, the folks that disobeyed God and didn't come last time. You know, um, we sometimes we react instead of respond to life don 't we and I mean it happens in our in our life with with if circumstances it happens with uh, doctrine, we see somebody abuse a doctrine and then we become the, we become the the example of the opposite of that and i, I don 't know what would happen if and I think we all do it i, I 'm guilty of it i don 't know what would happen if we responded instead of reacted to life, but you know we see people that are trying to make money, uh, a sign of their relationship with God, and we react to that, and we go, well, no, Jesus was poor, and we build a whole case to, be, to, to live in poverty. And, and I said um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, money's not a sign of your relationship with God, unless it is. So good. And, I, and I read, and I, which I, I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight, but I read, I think, five different, about five different people in the Bible who God made rich. I'll name a couple of them. You'll know them, of course. Abraham, it says, and God made Abraham rich. God made Isaac rich. God made Solomon the richest king. God said to Solomon, when he met Solomon in a dream, and he said, what do you want? And he said, I want wisdom to lead your people. And God said, because you did not ask for riches, power, wealth, or the head of your enemy, I'm going to give you riches, power, and wealth. And then God went on to say, You will be the richest king who ever lived, and there will be no king after you who will be more wealthy than you. Now, how many of you understand that Solomon's riches was directly attached to his relationship with God? How many understand that Abraham's riches... Can you turn those two lights down, please? Sorry. Abraham's riches were directly attached to his relationship with God. Are Are you all right? I'm saying... I'm saying wealth is not a sign of your relationship with God unless it is. So I'm not saying that everyone who's wealthy has a relationship with God. But I'm saying when God makes you wealthy, then that wealth is, a direct, is directly related to your relationship with God. So I'm saying let's not react and say, oh, wealth isn't a sign that you have a relationship with God. Sometimes it is. And I understand what we're saying. We're saying, well, you can be poor and have a relationship with God. Of course you can. But let's not go to the other extreme and say that God doesn't make some people rich. Come on. And if God made them rich, what, what's your problem with them? <laughs> okay, well, anyway. No, I'm, I'm right. <laughs> Genesis 13.2. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. You know, Boaz, uh, Ruth's husband was rich. Um, we could probably assume that Esther was pretty well off. And it goes on and on like that. So, um, I, I, you know, I almost feel like I need to go through and, and repeat everything I just shared because there is such, you know, if you write anything like this on social networking, you will be blasted. You will have, I will have 200, 300 negative comments about wealth, and I'm like, I don't understand why we're going, we all want to go to heaven and be wealthy, but for some reason we're opposed to people who are wealthy on earth. So, um, (laughs) no, I'm trying. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who has given you the power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers to this day. I want to read the whole passage to you one more time. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who has given you power to make wealth, that, for the reason of, that He might confirm His covenant, which he swore to your fathers to this day. How many you understand, in the case of the Jewish people in Israel, when they were wealthy, it was a direct sign of their relationship with God. Because God said, I'm going to make you wealthy as a sign of my covenant with you. <laughs> okay. It's funny that so many people that live poor ask rich people for money. And then they don't like the rich people that give them the money. Do you know that Jesus told more parables about money than any other subject? The parables of the minas, the parables of the talents, the parables of the lost coin. Jesus talked more about money than any other thing, any other single thing in the... around the subject of parables. So, okay, anyway, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. This actually has, you you should, uh, I could tell by the amount of quietness there is in the room, that you should probably go and listen to the other two messages that I shared because I spent most the whole session talking about the fact that God actually does make some people wealthy. And that, in fact... Uh, Proverbs, I, I, what I've been doing, I've been reading through Proverbs and I, uh, every night and every morning, and I've been cutting and pasting every verse that has anything to do with wealth. And it says, house and wealth are in the home of the righteous, Solomon said. So well, what if I'm not wealthy? What if I don't have any money? What if I'm broke? Well, I heard somebody say many years ago, if you don't have money, don't ask for money. Ask why you don't have money. And if God says, because I don't want you to, then hallelujah. <laughs> but it might be some other reason, like maybe you sabotage your wealth. I know lots of people that work with the poor. We've worked with the poor most of our life. In fact, in 20 years that we lived in Weaverville, we only lived three years by ourselves. 17 years, poor people lived with us. We reached out in the streets. We, we were, we, I had a youth group for five years that was with just probation kids. Well, they were on probation. Let me start over. We started with probation kids, 37 probation kids, and after uh, three months, that was with the probation department. We stayed there. Our contract was up after three months, and we stayed there for five years, two nights a week for five years. It was all the poorest kids in um, in our community. So I know what it's like to work with the poor. I think that we have to work with the poor. I think that um, Proverbs says that if you lend to the poor, if you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. How many of you would like to be in business with the Lord? And so I actually believe in working with the poor. I think that we shouldn't... Um, in fact, Proverbs says, if the king remembers the, the poor, his throne will be established forever. So how many of you understand, it doesn't matter how wealthy you become, that if you love the rich man over the poor man, then James says you have bad motives and God won't answer your prayers. So I I really, I want you to know that uh, our biggest giving, uh, Kathy, and my personal biggest giving goes to Africa to the orphans. And so we've been doing that for many years, and every year increased our giving to the poor. And so I believe in that. But there comes a challenge. Um, Some people can only work with the poor, and I think that has a lot to do with how you feel about yourself. And I do think that we along with working with the poor, we should make disciples of nations. And I want to tell you that I don't think that giving to the poor will ever change the culture of poverty. I think you have to influence influencers to change culture. So I think we have to make disciples of nations because in making disciples of nations, we'll change the culture of poverty to prosperity. So anyway, that's a good word. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 10. I want to um, talk a little bit about developing a wealth mentality. And... Um, verse 25. Now, this is a real interesting, I'm going to give you a little genesis of this verse for me. We were writing the book, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty. We had finished the book and um, I had an editor, her name's Allison Armadine, who helped me through my very first book and did a great job. And and, uh, when we finished the book, it had to go to the publisher three days. Uh, I was really late, so we had three days to, to actually edit the book and send it to the publisher. And so I had her come and stay at my house and and uh, she was stayed in, in one of our bedrooms and she was working. We were working like around the clock, 16-hour days. And uh, the first uh, morning, she woke up and she came out with this verse. It's really cool. Now, remember, we had just finished the book, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty. And here's the verse she found. Then Samuel explained to the book the ways of royalty. He wrote it in a book. I'm sorry. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, wrote it in a book, and lay it before the Lord. She found that on the last day, the day before it went to the printer. And then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, wrote it in a book, and laid it before the Lord. Anyway, so this verse has special meaning to me. The next verse says and it goes on to say, Then Samuel set all the people away, everyone to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeath. And valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. Are you with me so far? Verse 27. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. Did you get that? Let me read to you one more time. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. He wrote it in a book, and he laid it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeoth, And the valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no gifts. Here we go. I want to talk a little bit about honor and, and, and how honor and wealth flow together. I don't know if you kind of caught what's happening. Saul has just been anointed king. It says, after Saul was anointed king, Many, many of the valued men went with him, and evidently they brought gifts to Saul to honor him. But rebels despised him and brought him no presents. I'm saying the Bible equates the fact that they honored him with nobility, and the rebels who refused to give him gifts, who despised him, as rebels, because they refused to give gifts to him. And I'd just like to talk a little bit about this, this idea that we don't just give to the poor, but we also give to honor people. That part of the ways of royalty is that kings give gifts to kings. So I want to, uh, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 14, this is a story that it's, it's pretty, uh, it'll be a common story, you'll, you'll remember the story. Verse 8, it's Jesus sees his disciples um, arguing about who's the greatest, and so he tells them this story. When you are invited by someone to a wedding, to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more—anybody reading with me—someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who's invite, who invited you, he who invited you both, will come and say to him, "Give your place to this man." Then, in disgrace, you will proceed to the occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go to recline at the last place, so that when the one who is invited comes that he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have a seat of honor in the sight of all who's at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I want to pick up this uh, verse uh, 8. When you're invited to, if you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And I, I want to talk through this idea you know, there's on, on, there's, this is kind of truth held in tension. On one hand, we're all created equal. On the other hand, that's not true at all. On one hand, we are all equal in the sense that ethnic, gender, none of those things matter to God. On the other hand, there are some people who are more distinguished than others. Jesus did not tell us that we came when we come into the kingdom, when we come to this wedding feast of the kingdom, that we come to a round table, kumbaya, where we're all the same. But he actually said, we've come to a table that is a rectangular table, and there are levels of honor. And he said, listen, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about the fact... That there are, there are three levels of life. There is curses, and a curse means that you can do the right thing, but the wrong thing happens. That's what we were under before we knew Jesus. And that curse was released over a- a- Adam, Abraham, Abraham, and Adam, and whoever else was in the Old Testament, over Adam, when God cursed Adam, and he said, you're going to till the ground, you're going to do the right thing, but it's going to yield thorns and thistles. That's a curse. The next level of life is sowing and reaping. And how many understand we talk a lot about sowing and reaping? It means that what you planted, you actually get to harvest. How many know that's a lot better than tilling the ground and getting thorns and thistles? It means you're going to till the ground, you're going to work your ground, you're going to, you understand, it's a metaphor, you're going to do the right thing, and you're going to get your fruit. (laughs) You're going to get what you actually planted. And that's called sowing and reaping. But how many understand that the highest level of life is not sowing and reaping? Jesus said in Matthew 6, the birds of the air, they don't sow, nor do they reap. But what happens? The Father takes care of them. And I'd like to suggest that most people live in sowing and reaping because they don't understand honor. Because the highest level of life is not sowing and reaping the highest level of life, is inheritance. That means you get what you didn't work for. So here, I curse, I work and I don't get what I work for. Here is, is sowing and reaping. I work, I get what I work for. Here, I don't work, I get what someone else worked for. <laughs> That's called inheritance. And how many understand that it's like this? When we when in Egypt, the children of Israel were in Egypt, they lived in the land of not enough. When they moved to the the wilderness, they lived in the land of just enough. I'm saying it was actually the land of just enough. Remember, God said to them, you're going to get manna. You're going to collect it in the day. You can't keep it for two days because it will spoil except for Friday. What was the point? They couldn't save anything. It was the land of just enough. And they were learning how to trust God for every single thing day by day. They were learning day by day. But remember, when they crossed over in the promised land, the manna ceased. The cloud went away. The fire by night went away. The cloud by day went away. And God said, welcome to the promised land. And now they're in the land of milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey. What was it? It was a land of more than enough. I don't really understand this, why most people want to stay in the land of just enough. I don't know if it's kind of a slave mentality that we want to, and I understand there are different reasons for it, but I meet people all the time. It's like, I don't know if you don't trust yourself with more than enough. You don't want to have the responsibility of more than enough, or you think you'll fall away if you have more than enough. I don't know what the deal is, but, I, but we, it, we tend to stay in the wilderness, the land of just enough, and then we declare it as if it's the promised land. And I'm like, the world, there are tens of millions of people starving. Do you not want to be able to help them? then why would you not want to live in the land of more than enough? Why wouldn't you want to have more than enough for everything you want and need and have more than enough to give away? And I do understand that there is, there is something to be learned about sacrifice. I, I believe that in, in my family, I believe every child should learn sacrifice. I do. And I, I actually I believe that. I think that families should learn sacrifice. I don't think families should be sacrificed. No, I've watched families sacrifice for the sake of the ministry. I don't think a family should be sacrificed for the sake of the ministry, but I think every family should learn sacrifice. You know, and we, the way my kids grew up, they learned sacrifice because we didn't have much. And, um, you know, we grew up, when my kids were growing up, if we bought if we bought Jason a pair of shoes, it meant we, can't, we couldn't buy shoes that month for Shannon or Jamie. That's the way we, we were raised. And we were never starving. We were, my kids always had an, an, a room to live in, and... By the way, I'm not complaining. I'm, saying, I'm simply saying, we lived in the land of just enough. We always had just enough. We never, my kids never thought, well, there's not, we're not going to have a house. We're not going to have food. But we, we lived most of our life in the land of just enough. And so, you know, um, I told this story a few times. But I remember going home one night, and we had uh, wintertime in Weaverville. You know, we owned four businesses in Weaverville. So, um, wintertime in Weaverville, nothing. There isn't much happening, and the people who are doing business with you, it's pretty much on credit, and they pretty much don't pay their bill until springtime. So things get really, really tight, and you can either not do business with those people that will pay you in springtime, or you can give them the services and hope and, and wait till three months before you get paid. And that's just the way it went. So we had some really, really, really tough times. And I remember going home one night, and, you know, it was wintertime. I remember because there was snow on the ground, a couple of feet of snow on the ground. And I drove up to my house, and I happened to get home about early that night because I typically didn't get home till 6 or 6.30. And it, I, like I said, it was winter, so it was dark at 5. So, I, 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 you know, we, we happened to get all the cars done that night early, and uh, obviously I was working in a shop. Owning, I owned a couple of shops, three shops. And I, I drove home at 5, and uh, dark, pitch dark, really dark that night. I drove up my driveway, and there was, no, there was no lights on in my house. I went, that's kind of odd. I wonder where Kathy is. And then as I crested, we had a little hill that co- our house was kind of up on a hill. As I came up to the top of the hill, I see Kathy's car there. And, the, and I began to kind of panic, like, oh, my goodness, there's no lights on. Her car's here. What's going on? What's wrong? And so I run upstairs, up, up the deck stairs, and, and I open the door, and the, it's, there's two... Little lanterns in the front room, the fire's going in the fireplace. We had a a wood stove, so it's warm in there. And there's three blankets that are made into tents. And I say, "Hey, what's going on?" And the three little kids, my three kids, they crawl out of their tents and like, "Hi, Daddy!" I go, "What are you doing?" They're like, "We're playing camping." And just then, Kathy comes out of the kitchen where it's dark, and she comes running out of the, into the front. She's like, what are you doing home? Why are you home? You're, what time is it? What, you're, you're home early. I said, what, what's going on? She's like, no, I'll just and, she, and I'm following her, and she, she's, she's, you know, she's kind of talking to me, and she's obviously nervous. And, she, and we walk out on the front deck. I said, "Can you, wait, wait, can you tell me what's happening? <laughs> and she opens up the breaker box and flips the big switch, the main switch on, and all my electricity goes on. And I said, come here. (laughs) What just happened? She said, well, you know, things are really tight. So I turn off the main switch after you leave in the morning, and I turn it on an hour before you come home. And the kids and I, we play camping all day. I said, how long have you been doing that? She said, I don't know, a couple months. This is, a, this is what it means to be married to a woman of your dreams. That when things are tough, you don't blame God. You don't poison the children. You don't tell them your dad's an idiot. If you wouldn't have built these businesses, we wouldn't be living like this. No, instead, you figure out what you can do when you have three little children at home to help. And my children learned. What to do when things are tight, in their little tents, watching their mama make the best of a bad situation. And that's what we do when things are tough. And we learn things when things are tough that we don't learn when there's more than enough. But I'd like to also point out that we learn things when there's more than enough that we never learn when it's tight. And I'm on, I'm on the other side of that now, and I'm learning some things I never learned when it was, there was just enough. I grew up poor, and then I lived most of all of our life in the land of just enough. Up till 10 years ago, it was a land of just enough. And I thought, this is the only way you learn about the king. In the last 10 years, I figured out that there's another side of the king. There's, there's another side of the king besides sacrifice. And that side is passion, and plenty. I know what it's like to not like wealthy people. I know what it's like to live in, in poor America, not poor Africa. I don't know what it's like to live in poor Africa. I watch the Africans, but I, I don't know what it's like to live in poor Africa. But I know what it's like to live in poor America. And one, one block from me is the wealthiest neighborhood in the Bay Area at the time. I know what it's like to go to school with rich kids and be... The, be one of four kids who stand in line with a voucher to get lunch and have all the other kids making fun of you. I know what that's like. And how many you know that's still wealth from every other country in the world? I, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying I know what it's like to be that kid with the voucher. You know, my dad drowned when I was three. I was raised on welfare. I know what that's like to have the welfare lady come to your house once a month, which they used to do, and search our cupboards. And if we had candy or anything like that, they took money from our welfare check. I know what it's like to have them search my bedroom to see if I had anybody staying overnight because when you're on welfare, you couldn't have a friend stay overnight. Now, that's all changed now, but that's the way I grew up. So I know what it's like. I know what the humility of, of being poor is like. I understand that well. I know what it's like to take a grocery cart for five years from house to house and pick up bottles and take them to the store and have all the wealthy people save their bottles because the poor kid down the street... We'll pick them up every Friday. I I know what it's like to go in the grocery store and have the man know me by first name because I'm the kid who brings the bottles in every week. So I know what that's like. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. But I'd like to propose to you, there's a lot to learn from being wealthy too. (laughs) Wherever condition you're in, there's grace for it. Can I just say this? Don't spiritualize your condition. Either side that you're on. If you're walking with God and, he's, and you're in the land of, of just enough, just be thankful you're in the land of just enough and you're not in the land of not enough. Just be thankful. I understand. Be content. Be thankful. But don't despise the people that are in the land of more than enough because they're typically the ones that you're working for. They're typically the ones that are creating jobs and the ones that are taking care of the poor. I understand not always, but, you know, we see a great we see a great example in Bill Gates. And I don't know Bill Gates, but I, I'm really, really proud of him. I'm really proud of somebody who could live in a mansion on some island someplace and forget there's even poor people in the world. And instead, him and his wife have done a wonderful job in Africa. They're working all over Africa, right, Chris? We see their work all over Africa helping to change the culture of Africa. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And, you know, when you, you start, like despising rich people, remember this, it's mostly wealthy people, people at least have more than enough, they're taking care of the poor people. I never understood that when I was poor, but I do now. Anyway, I want to go back to my message. (laughs) Luke 14, verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you. May have been invited by him. You know, um, in verse in First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse ten, there's a gift of the Holy Spirit called distinguishing of spirits. Anyone ever heard of that gift? Yeah. For years, I taught that the distinguishing of spirits. I read it. I read it to mean the distinguishing of evil spirits, and we use that gift of distinguishing of evil spirits to help in deliverance sessions. And by the way, I obviously believe. That the gift of distinguishing of spirits helps you to distinguish evil spirits. But I'd like to suggest to you that the most important part of distinguishing of spirits has nothing to do with demons. I'd like to suggest to you that the distinguishing of spirits is not the distinguishing of evil spirits, but the distinguishing of spirits. So that you actually know people after the spirit instead of after the flesh. And that when you're sitting somebody, when you're sitting next to someone who's more distinguished than you. When you're sitting next, to, when you come into a room and somebody is more distinguished than you in the room, you know how to get to the lower seat so that the anointing flows to you. Because see, the only way—how many of you know—if you honor your mother and father, you have life. How many of you know that honor releases life? I walk into a room and the gift of distinguishing of spirits. I see somebody who's distinguished in God, they have won a place in God. I have yet to win. How many know that jesus that Jesus increased in favor with man, which we can understand, and with God? How many know that he had a level of favor in God and he increased as he grew in God i 'm saying that if you catch let's say that i come i get in the room with chris o here and he has been working on his relationship with god and he's gone from favor to favor to favor to favor and let's just say favors 1 to 10 just to make just create an example and i'm in the room and i'm at a 3 not because i'm a bad person but because i'm just growing in god and he's at a 6 How many know I can use the gift of distinguishing of spirits and I realize how much favor is on his life and what I do is I get low. I become the student and he becomes the teacher. What happens? I get low, I honor him, and I get exalted. See, the challenge in our culture... I'm going to have to back up before I say this because I, I understand how this could sound. I, I am not the guy who thinks that the new generation does it all wrong and we got it all right. It's like, oh, this generation, stopped us. Huh? you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, we know about when you were a kid. All those guys do is play violent video games. No, we didn't play violent video games. We had sticks and we hit each other with them and threw rocks at each other and played army on our front lawn. That's what we did. We didn't do it as a safe thing of playing video games. We actually hit each other with sticks. And my mama would hand me a stick and go, go outside and hit one another with sticks. Stupid kid, get out of the house. And so we all just have this idea, you know, it's like people are so different today. No, they weren't any different. We just, you know, we play video games now instead of actually do the real thing. So we have virtual accidents. <laughs> so I, 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 don't, I don't actually believe that this generation is, you know, worse off. I think that every generation has its strengths and every generation has its weaknesses. And I'd propose that most of our weaknesses are our strengths over extended in my grandfather's day he would tell me stories about the great depression and actually we laughed a lot cuz my grandfather was just a funny man and he you know and, and they 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 did crazy things to make it through the depression tough times and my grandmother told me about the world war, war one and two and when the women had to go to work. And I understand, you know, the women weren't in the workforce at that time much as far as, I'm talking about jobs that they got paid for. They're obviously working at home. But they had to go to work because the men were out to war and they ran out of ammunition and they were forced to go to work. And so, you know, they talk about those times and they learned persistence and they learned things that, that my generation didn't have to work for. And this, the, the challenge in this generation they're the most creative generation in the history of the world. I mean, this, this this generation, my grandkids could do things on computers that I still can't do. They're totally not afraid of anything. I'll say, hey, I don't know how to work. Papa, let me take care of that. I'm like, how did you do that? Let us have this incredible ability, like they grew up with you know, IT and with high technology and with art and with all this creative stuff, and they're just... They're just inventing new things. I mean, does anyone think they won't have a cure for cancer in 15 years? Does anyone think that? No, I mean, we know they will. It's just like, this is, this is the generation. They're going to invent more things and have more cures and create more inventions and have create, and, 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 and have, they'll advance society to a place my great-grandfather never even dreamed of. The, the the downside of this great creativity is that we often don't like authority and we you know this is the turnkey generation most many of us didn't have fathers and if we did they didn't know how to be a father and we grew up with just if we if we had a mother and so you know we have grown up not trusting authority and this whole idea that you know that actually i, I should submit to somebody is a it, it's it's actually painful it's a painful idea. The idea that someone should be honored above me, that's like, that's like telling somebody that you know, there's Martians on, on the moon. Or on Mars, I guess. The Martians would be on Mars. Unless they're landing on the moon also. And, and what I'm getting at is this. Because of that, we've done two things. One, we've relegated ourselves to sowing and reaping. Because the only way to get an inheritance is to honor your mother and father. And the second thing we've done is we separated to generations. God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many of you know God's not the God of just three people? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know who's your God, but that's the only God I'm at. No, God's saying, I am a multi... I think multi-generationally. I think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God's doing something in your life, when God's doing something in your life right now, today... I want to tell you that God, this is the female side of God. He multitasks. <laughs> when God does something in your life today, he's thinking about the person who went before you and the person who will come after you and the people who are with you. Come on. Oftentimes, if you could just stop and think from eternity, uh, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts without which no one can know the ways of God. Sometimes you have things happen and you can't make heads or tails of it. Why did that happen? It's not all about you. It's about you. It's about the person who went before you. It's about people who will come after you. In fact, it's a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the reason why he leaves an inheritance to his children's children is because he's thinking about a generation he will never see. Yes. So when God does something to you, if it doesn't make sense, it probably will for your kids, or their kids, or their kids' kids. Like what God does to you, because you live in eternity, it affects the generations ahead of you and the generations behind you. How many know eternity doesn't have a past, present, or future? <laughs> so here's the challenge. When, you, when you're all about you, when you're like, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to honor anybody, I, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, here's the challenge. You cut yourself off from all of what the generations behind you have won. And the church talks like that consistently. I was, just, I was just in San Clemente. got home at 4 o'clock this morning. And it was, I was talking to them about multi-generational blessing. And I said, you know, the way the church thinks, they're always trying to get back to something. Oh, man. If we could be like the... Oh, man. In, in Toronto. We are obsessed with what God did. Oh, Brownsville. Oh, man. Azusa Street. By the way, I love Azusa Street. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying... We are we're always trying to get back to something. We need to get back to the good old days. Can you imagine if, you know, if technolog- technologists thought like that? I'm like, we just need to get back to the light bulb. That Edison thing, that was the thing. I mean, that's just stupid. But what I'm getting at is that, you know, every other, every other person in the world besides the church thinks, Multi-generationally, they don't like go back and figure out if round's the best tire. They don't have General Motors experimenting with square. They take what the last generation built, and they build on top of it. But in order to do that, you have to stay connected to the generation before you. And if you're like, I don't want to honor that generation, then you end up with a curse. Remember Malachi said, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. What's he going to do? He's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons, sons to fathers. Least I smite the nation with a curse. What is a curse? Sowing and reaping. You relegate yourself to the lowest level of life in the kingdom when you separate yourself from the generations that went before you because now you have no inheritance. And what you could have got for free, you spend your whole, t- whole, your whole life working for Why? Because you decided to be rebellious and bring no gifts. Metaphorically speaking. And Samuel wrote the book of royalty and put it before the Lord. And some rebels brought him no presents. We just... I refuse to honor people who have authority. Fine. But you don't understand, it's costing you your inheritance. I put just a little, actually, I didn't even post it. One of my PAs posted something on, on uh, some quote uh, yesterday, I think it was, about the difference between accountability and covering. And I think I had three comments on there. I mean, it's just, it was just one line quote. It was a really simple quote. And, some, and it's two or three people got on there and wrote, God's my covering. I mean, obviously, God's your covering. God's your provision, but you still go to work. God's your air, but you still breathe. I'm just stupid. I mean, their point is simple nobody tells me what to do except my boss, who doesn't know God. I do everything he tells me to do for money. I'll do what my boss tells me to do for money, but I won't do what my pastor tells me to do for love. And then we wonder why we're always poor. I don't know why I'm poor. Well, because you have to make it all yourself. There's no inheritance. There's no honor. You come in every day and you sit at the most distinguished seat and wonder why God's opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. I think every person in here should be praying for the gift of distinguishing of spirits. And I think you should practice. When you're in a group of people who say, Holy Spirit, who has the most favor in here? Is there any way I can honor that person and receive what you've given them? Because that's real impartation. And by the way, you can't ask for people's mantles. Please stop asking for mantles. <laughs> mantles stay with the mission. Anointing stays with the man. When the president of the United States becomes president, he receives a mantle in inauguration. That mantle helps him to do what he couldn't do as a human, lead a country. When he comes out of office, the mantle stays with the mission, and the next person takes the mantle and that person goes and leaves the mantle there. You can't ask people for their mantle, because then they couldn't function in their mission. John chapter 12. Turn there. Verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. And they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus, with one of those, reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed his feet, and wiped I'm sorry, yeah, anointed his anointed Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii? and given to the poor people. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had, as he had the money box, he would pilfer it what was put in it. Therefore, Jesus said to him, let, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Let me just make a comment. How many know the poor need to be with us? They don't need to be outside of us. The goal is to always have the poor with us. I don't care what kind of church you build, if you don't have the poor with you, you haven't done what Jesus said. You should always have the poor with you. Now, John records that Judas said this, but I think it's Luke records that all the disciples said it, and he, he, he highlights that Judas was one of the ones who said it, and that Judas was not thinking about poor people. He was thinking about, well... If we sold this perfume and put it in the money box, I would have more money to steal from. But Jesus makes a great comment, and I, I should have got the other quote from the other gospel, because he goes on to say that what Mary did here will be spoken every place this gospel is preached. Now, I don't know if you kind of, let me just paint a picture of what's happening. So Mary and Martha are extremely wealthy. How do you know that? Well, they owned their own house. The city was named after them. It was the city of Martha and Mary, not the city of Lazarus. And Mary's got perfume that's worth a year's wages. Any girl in here have perfume worth a year's wages? Which would be about $58,000. Not too many people I know have perfume that cost a year's wages. How many you know if your perfume costs a year's wages, you've probably got some other stuff. So the idea that Jesus only hung around the poor, sorry, not true. She comes in the room, she's weeping, which every time we see Mary, she's always weeping. Martha's always mad, and Mary's always weeping. <laughs> I love that Jesus loves Martha and Mary. He loves Mary's justice thing and he loves Mar- I'm sorry, he loves Martha's justice thing and he loves Mary's emotional thing. And Mary comes in and she begins to pour. This very expensive perfume over Jesus. The disciples, and really all the disciples, they're indignant. They're like, "What the heck are you doing? We have all these poor people who always try to get food? Like, we could have sold this." And Jesus is like, "No, no, it's good." And what I'm getting at is this. When you have a poverty mentality, you know how to give to the poor. But it takes a noble mentality to give to someone who already has everything. And she is giving to the king of kings. Something that could have been used for the poor. And Jesus said, she chose the right thing. And I'm saying, there are times to honor people who deserve honor. And there are times to give to the poor. There are times that what you're honoring people with, you could give to the poor, but the right thing to do is use it to honor someone. Uh-oh, here we go. I went to um, Winston Churchill's house two years ago with Danny Silk. He he wasn't home. <laughs> went on some sort of journey. Anybody ever been to Winston Churchill's house? Yeah, a few people. Really beautiful Kind of rustic, cabinish house, right? Really beautiful, and the walls, as you can imagine, they're just lined with these glass cabinets of all the things that he was given by kings and queens and rulers and ambassadors and mayors and governors over the years. Just filled, just cabinet after cabinet. It's pretty. I'd say six, seven, eight thousand square foot house, and we just walked, and and you know, and there, lots of them are tagged with who gave him this thing and who gave them that thing and why he was awarded that thing and who he was given that thing for, and. It's really beautiful. and One of the things I notice is that kings don't give kings things they need. See, so when you give a king, when a king gives a king a gift, he doesn't give them something they need. You know why? Because if you gave a king something he needed, if a king gave another king something he needed, the first thing it says is, I saw your deficiency. And the second thing it says, I met your deficiency. I dishonored you. I uncovered your need. So specifically, when a king gives a gift to a king or a queen gives a gift to a queen, she does not, he does not give them something they need. He gives them something he'll probably never use. You know why? Because it's not a gift that you give to the poor. It's a gift you give to honor. Crazy things like $2,000 pens and $5,000 swords. Things you'll hang on a wall you'll never use. Why? Why? Because God desires us to give to the poor. He also desires us to think like royalty. And royalty honors royalty. And when you honor another person, you create a pathway for blessing to flow. Person to person. I want to challenge you tonight. I want to challenge you to begin to think like a king. Like a queen. I, I want to challenge you. Like you may be living like I grew up. You may be living like we lived in Weaverville. I, there's nothing wrong with that. But how about if you start thinking like a king, like a queen, now before you have any money, so that you're not thinking like that because you have money. You're thinking that like that because you know who your daddy is. <laughs> it's interesting. That in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, says the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them, which is interesting. They did that for about four years. I think it's beautiful. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and listen to this and lay them at the apostles feet and they the apostles would distribute them as they had need now this is really beautiful because it takes the principle of honoring the poor and the principle of honoring those who deserve honor and, it, and they flow together did you notice that you know y- you understand that in the first century people lived and died pretty much in the same neighborhood, right? Most people. So you born in this house, you move maybe down the street, to that house. In fact, when I was in Israel, they said the custom in the days of Christ was that when your son got married, you would add a room to your house and his wife and would move in there, and that's where they would start their family. So I'm saying that you pretty much knew everybody in town. Because... The You know, people, uh, transportation was horses, right? So, you, you know, how far could you ride? My point. I, I'm making a point here. When, when these people saw the need in their community, instead of selling their property and going to Johnny's house and giving him the need, going to Tom's house and giving him what he needed, going to Chris's house and giving him what he needed, they didn't do that. They took the money and they gave the money to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute the money. Why did they do that? Because they weren't just generous, they were also trusting. Are you following me? They said, I know these three guys need stuff. I see their I see the need down the street. But I trust you more than I trust me to distribute the money where you think it should go. How many know that's not just generosity, that's honor. Okay, how are we doing? I love this chapter uh, 10 of the book of Acts. We're almost done. I hope you're not too bored. Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion that was born... I'm sorry, that was of the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, I want to stop. Did you notice that this is a centurion... He's a Roman centurion. He he fears a God he doesn't know. How do we know that? Because Peter's about to come to his house in the next chapter. He doesn't know this God, but he gives alms and he prays to a God he doesn't know. Selah. About the ninth hour of the day, he he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in, and he said, Cornelius... And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your giving have ascended as a memorial before God. Whew. How many of you know when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea? Remember on dry land, right? They crossed the Red Sea, they set up stones. When they crossed the Jordan River, they set up stones in the river and on the shore. And God says to Joshua, Set these stones up, Joshua's, why? He said, so when your children say, hey, what are those stones in the middle of the river? they go, oh, let me tell you what God did. And they became memorial stones attached to the word memory. This is to repeat the memories of God. They were monuments to the works of God. Are you with me? God says to Cornelius, your prayers and your gifts have become a monument in heaven. God said to Joshua, set up monuments to my work on earth. But he said to Cornelius, when you pray, monuments are being established in heaven. And God looks out and sees the works of Cornelius. And one day he looks out, metaphorically speaking, and he sees a pile of stones that metaphorically speak of his giving and his prayers. And goes, hey, have we done anything for that guy? And God remembers The prayers and giving of Cornelius because Cornelius' prayers and giving are creating a monument in heaven to a God he doesn't know. And the response is an angel visitation. And God sends Peter to his house, a famous apostle going to one man's house to a Gentile on top of that. Gives Peter a vision. Gives Cornelius a vision. Has it both to have angel visitation. God has to do all these supernatural things just to get a Jew to speak to a Gentile. And Cornelius becomes, as far as we know, the first Gentile convert. Why did it happen? Because he gave. Because he honored not the poor, of course, probably he did, but he honored a God he didn't know. That's just such a good word. Amen. I have five more pages, but. No, I think I'm supposed to release wealth on you. And we can talk about it all night. I mean, I can try to convince you. But here's my question. How about if you build, how would you like to make God your partner? i got to just quote this verse. Isaac sowed in a famine. A famine. You know what a famine means? No water. And he reaped a hundredfold. Ecclesiastes says, if you watch the wind, you'll never sow. If you watch the waves, you'll never sow. If you watch the rain, you'll never sow. How do you know if when you sow in the morning, or you sow in the evening, or you sow in the afternoon, how do you know what sowing God's going to bless? And his point is this. If you watch the conditions, you won't take a risk but if you watch the lord and you build partnerships with the lord it doesn't matter if it's famine if it's raining if it's pouring if the wind's blowing if the wind, if the rain doesn't happen god says listen if you watch me instead of the conditions you'll sow and i will make it I i'll i will create 30 60 and 100 fold if you watch me isaac sowed in a famine do you know what happens when you sow in a famine think about this not only do you have not only did he receive a hundredfold, but he's the only one who got who has food. How many of you know what you can sell food for if you're the only guy who has it? <laughs> Isaac sowed in a famine and reaped a hundredfold. Why did he reap a hundredfold? He has hungry people all, all around him. I mean, I'm not saying he sold to him for a high price, but how many you know people liked Isaac after that? Because if your neighbor's the only one who has food and you're and he's selling you the food at at a, even a normal cost, how many know he's he's got a, he's got a corner on the market. How many know what happens when you have the only widget and people need it? Isaac sowed in a famine and reaped a hundredfold. I'm saying, why not make a partnership with God? Why not create a partnership with God? Why not leave tonight and say, God, I want you to be my partner, be my business partner. I'll give you ten percent. I'll keep ninety. You make sure that when I plant, no matter the condition, it always grows. I'll plant, you make it grow. That's our partnership. And I'll keep giving you 10% back. Or more. But God has, His base price is 10%. He won't do it for nine. But He'll be your business partner for 10%. And you can sow in any condition, and if you look to Him, He'll make sure it grows. That's a good business partner. He has, he has the climate of the planet. He controls the climate of the planet. And he controls the heart of the king. The heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord. Like water, he turns it whatever way he wishes. How would you like to have a partner like that who can control all the conditions you can't control? You can control what you do, but you can't control what they do. But he can. He's my business partner. Why don't you stand and let me just pray for you. Time to move from sourcing to resourcing. Time to do, go from what you can do to what he can do. Time to honor the people around you and move out of the land of just enough. How do I get out of the land of just enough? I start to honor, so instead of just sowing and reaping, I start to get, move into an inheritance. God, I pray right now for every single person in this room, and people who are listening by Bethel TV, I pray in Jesus' name that you would put honor in our hearts. I mean, you would actually put it in our hearts. It just wouldn't be a deed we do. It would be, be a sense we have. That you would give everyone who listens to this message the gift of discerning of spirits. And that by tomorrow morning when we wake, we have a deep sense of the favor that you've put on certain people that we could honor them, that we could give to the poor, and we could honor the people that you have favor on so we'd be honoring the people you commissioned. And Father, we, pr- we pray that we'd move out of the land of not enough, for sure, and we move into the land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah. A land that Joshua, the Hebrew name Jesus, took them into. A land of more than enough. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would change the way we think. That you would break that wilderness thinking. That you would break the Egyptian thinking for sure. That we'd stop speaking Egyptian. It's the language of complaining. And we'd start speaking the language of heaven. And we'd see that our Father is really wealthy, so the least among us is incredibly wealthy. We are sons and daughters of a rich king. We are royalty and nobility, and may we behave towards the poor. In a way that you would, and maybe we behave towards those who you honor in the same way you would. Amen. Thank you so very much.